Grab a seat. Thank you. Can we express gratitude to our team leading us this morning? It's fun when the church shares its gifts with the church. Would you agree with that? It's good. It's good. Thank you, team. Um, Start a brand new series this week called Love Peoria. For six weeks, we're going to be saying Love Peoria as yourself. And there is some uh, scripture that uh, we kind of play off of in order to, to make that phrase and and think of that phrase. So I'm looking forward to some of the things that we're going to be talking about uh, for the next six weeks. Kicks off today, and and there are some things that we believe that are the why or the foundation of this series. And and one of the primary things that we as the church believe is that we believe that new life is made possible here on earth for us as a result of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. We believe that God came down in the form of man, we call him Jesus, and that he was persecuted, he was killed, he died, and he rose from the dead, and in so doing, makes us, makes it possible for us to, in a way, raise from the death that we might be experiencing in this life. His presence, his Holy Spirit, makes that possible for us. We believe that this new life that we enter into is a a world that is kind of being made possible and being participated in. In this world, we call that world the kingdom of God. One of the trademarks of the kingdom of God is that the old is passing away and the new things that Jesus provides for us are being revealed before us. And so a way that we enter into this kingdom way of living is, first of all, believing that Jesus did die and was buried and that he did raise back to life. We then kind of put our trust in the power that Jesus has in our lives by his Holy Spirit, and we make a decision to say, I understand certain habits and, and ways of thinking and living and speaking and doing, and I am making a decision to turn away from that way of living, and I'm going to step into a new way of life that Jesus would have for me. We believe that if, if those are decisions that we make both at one time in our life and friends every day, then we believe that we are participants and citizens in the kingdom of God. And one of the foundational trademarks of the kingdom of God is love. And so we are going to be talking about the love that God has for us, and as a result of his love for us, the love that we are able to have for others for this entire series. I hope three things, three outcomes for this series, and I'm going to bring these up every week, Because there's something about speaking about what you hope to happen, and sometimes it just happens, right? Um, So I want to actually be clear in three outcomes that I have uh, for us, for anyone who would gather here. The first is that our love goes from something we do to something we become. It's my first hope for us is that we do not think of love as these single and isolated acts of kindness, but that love is something that we become, and that there isn't anything that we can do that isn't love. Another way of saying that is that all we do is love. 
and that the, the love just spills out to our neighbors and our coworkers and our church family and our friends and, the, and even the, the strangers that we interact with, is that the only possible way of us living is just being people who just love where they are. My first hope is that love goes from something we do to something we become. The second is that each of us would see for ourselves, given the, the place in life that we are currently in, each of us would see how impactful our love to others really is. I hope that we understand really how love translates to our core value of going all in, that even when it seems like we only have a little bit to offer, when we only feel like we've just got a little bit of love to give, that it makes a massive difference in not only another person's life, but it's going to make a difference in your life. And if it's making a difference in your life and it's making a difference in someone else's life, then it's probably going to make a difference in someone else's life that's attached to one of those two lives. Are you with me this morning, church? There's ripple effects to our love. And I hope that we learn over the next six weeks that there is an impact in a handwritten note to someone. That there is impact in making eye contact with the person that you haven't yet. Waving, smiling, acknowledging that another person is in fact a human being that you are recognizing is alive. There is power in that. And the third outcome that I hope for us is that we love Peoria as ourself. I hope that you love Peoria as yourself. Because uh, this is a city worth loving, if you ask me. If you ask me, this is a city worth loving. So, to begin our time together this morning, I want to present two observations, and out of those two observations would prove to be one reality, and it's this. Life is dynamic. Things always seem to be changing. We constantly find ourselves needing to adapt to the situations around us. Two observations, one reality. Life is dynamic. Things always seem to be changing. We constantly find ourselves needing to adapt to the situations around us. There are realities for all of us that we experience, no matter where you're at in life. School, work, family life, friend circles, your church news headlines, local and global events, cultural shifts, cultural movements. These realities are always changing. Some of the most dynamic realities out there. Always changing, always dynamic, always bringing uh, opportunities and sometimes uh, speed bumps <laughs> for us to have to adapt to. Another observation about that observation is that every single source of change, listen here, every single source of change tends to provide their own solution as well. Bear with me for a few examples. If you need to adapt at work, the culture of work sometimes would say, just quit. <laughs> Find a new job. Because <laughs> that's how we adapt sometimes at work, right? Just quit. File for a transfer. 
uh, file a formal complaint against one of your superiors. That's how, those are the solutions at the very same exact time that your workplace can provide a change, can provide a problem, can provide a conflict. It also presents solutions. Well, if, if you're having a problem with how we do things, well, here's a few solutions of how you can deal with those things, right? Same thing with having to adapt to changes in your family life. Hear me. Some of the solutions that present themselves out of the changes that our families uh, present us could include ignoring and disowning. Let's be real this morning. Hey, I, I, know, you're, <laughs> I know your family's causing you a lot of problems, but you know there happens to be a solution. Just don't talk to them. <laughs> or fall in the stereotype of people going to church on Christmas and Easter, be Creaster family. You with me? That, that might have hurt someone. I'm sorry. Some of the solutions that family issues present us are treating others like you feel like you are being treated. Not treating your family as you want to be treated. I've read that somewhere. <laughs> but treating them as you feel like you are being treated by them. That's sometimes a solution that family issues present us. We're talking about adapting. Adapting to events. Pick a side. Vote for someone. Focus your energies on identifying opposition and structure your life around either avoiding or attacking that, op that opposition. Those are some of the adaptations that that events provide. They give you the problem. They give you a few solutions too. So out of that, here's, a, here's the, our fourth observation this morning, friends. We're talking, just talking about life. We're just talking about life here. A hundred different solutions to a hundred different changes will always leave you running in circles. Every time. Ten out of ten. Every time. You got a hundred different things you need to adapt to. Those things give you a hundred different solutions. Quit, ignore, disown, whatever. If you have to ingest and digest and translate and adapt to all of those solutions, you're going to be running in circles. And they can't all be healthy. <laughs> they can't all be manageable. They can't all be puzzle pieces that fit together. And probably a lot of them aren't right. They're just not right. So, to paint this picture, I would like to talk about 6,000 years of human history. Can I do that? Thank you. The opening books of our Bibles here, um, first five, are huge when we consider the people of God. We consider to be the story of the people of God. The, the, the opening books of our scriptures are massive. The stories that are told, the implications that arise from the texts. The book of Genesis, the very first book of your Bible, talks about how this was all created. Who created it? It talks about a flood. And then it talks about God rebuilding his people from a guy named Abraham. You heard of him? Who had many sons and many sons had Father Abraham. That's how the people of God multiply and build is all of these sons. In the book of Genesis, those people are then sold into slavery. 
go into slavery in Egypt where they would be for generations. So we're talking hundreds of years just in the first book of the Bible. Creation, flood, rebuilding of the people. People are enslaved for generations, hundreds of years. Book of Exodus tells the story of those enslaved people becoming free people. We enter in the character of Moses, where Moses frees the people, and uh, you know he goes to Pharaoh, let my people go, the sea parts. It's a great movie from the 50s. And um, it tells the story of freedom from slavery to life after slavery. Now, and then we're going to get into this, but very interesting thing happening in Exodus is that there's this reorientation that needs to take place. Imagine if not only yourself, but your, grand, your parents and your grandparents and their parents and their parents and their parents and their parents were slaves. That would drastically shape how you viewed the world around you, how you saw other people, and how you viewed other people, what you would think about things like politics and, and things like that. And so the third book of our Bible, Leviticus, is the detailed picture of the culture being formed for these newly freed people. All these people knew and all their ancestors knew were oppression, slavery, jail, being trapped, being, uh, having rules and regulations put on them against their will. That's all they knew. And so we get these things that we call the Ten Commandments. We get these things called the Levitical Law, Scholars identify 600 independent and individual rules in the book of Leviticus. We are not going to read all of them today. You're welcome. However, this is where we pick up in the story. Is the people of God are now free after generations. And God is giving them these ways of going about life so that they can reorient their life now being free. So consider the situation. Over the last several centuries, your people have been established, multiplied, they moved, they died, they were enslaved, they multiplied again, and now they were free. You don't have an established way of life because your people barely had one. Times had changed, and Egypt had been your life. Up until now. So you're free. What do you center your life around? Because all you've known is getting up at the sunrise and going to bed at the sunset. So what do you center your life around now? Back to our analogy earlier. You could say our ancestors did this. I heard that my great, 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 great grandpa did that. So maybe we could do that. Maybe we could do what they did 400 years ago. <laughs> maybe that'll work for us. Maybe you could say, Egypt is doing this, so maybe we need to do that too. You could say those things. You could say, we need a king. We need an established leader. We need someone to just be in charge. Maybe some of you would ask, where is God anyway? We see that in the story. And back to our earlier analogy, you would have pretty quickly 100 different problems. And perhaps 100 different solutions would arise. So maybe there's another way. Let's talk about that today. Their new life of freedom 
in light of their wild past, needed drastic reorientation. So this is exactly what God does in these opening books of Scripture, is that God provides new life by giving his people a new way of life. Notice that he doesn't just free them and leave them out there in the wilderness. He doesn't just free them and say, all right, I got you out of there, good luck. No, God gives them, he provides them a new life by giving them a new way of living, giving them a new way of thinking, helping them along in the process of orienting to freedom. And in large part, the book of Leviticus asks and answers this question. How are human beings supposed to live in proximity to a holy God? Are you with me this morning? Egypt's no longer in the picture. Slavery is no longer in the picture. There is the sense of freedom and there is a presence of God within this life of freedom. How are human beings supposed to live in proximity to this holy God? Friends, if you've ever, uh, you know, tried to read the Bible straight through, right? And then you got to Leviticus. (laughs) It's a joke for people who've been there. And not then... Take our word for it. Um, Friends, i got to be honest. It's actually a really exciting book. If you look at it from those lenses, if you look at it from the lenses of this is a people who for hundreds of years were told every single thing that they had to do, and if they didn't, but they get freedom now, and they're being helped by the creator of the universe. It's actually a very exciting book. Hundreds of laws and regulations about conduct, decision-making, generosity, organization, and worship. This is order for the first time in a long time. Order in, in, a, in a past or history of chaos. And we look at Leviticus and we say, how boring. <laughs> but if you were to sit down and write out every single law that you abide by, For those of you who, um, I'm not even going to put it on you, but for those of you who make a conscious decision to not do something, that's a law you've put on yourself. I'm not saying it's bad, but what I'm saying is we would probably have more than 600 if we really got down to it. So 600 laws in Leviticus is child's play as far as I'm concerned. This is order for the first time in a long time. It addresses God and us. How are we supposed to live in proximity to this God? So we see these different rules and regulations about tabernacle and places of worship and and different different things to chant and different things to say and sacrifices even. It gets pretty crazy. But that's what's going on, is order when there at, at one point was not order. But it also addresses us and us. Leviticus addresses God and us, but it also addresses us and us. And this is where we're gonna do some reading. So, If you have your Bibles with you, I would invite you to turn to Leviticus chapter 19. Leviticus is the third book in your Bible. Leviticus chapter 19. If you don't have your own Bible with you, you'd like to follow along. Uh, By your feet somewhere on one of the uh, chair racks is a Bible there. You can follow along with us on page 184. If you do not have your own Bible, that is our gift to you. Feel free to take that home. 
Leviticus chapter 19, we're going to start at verse 9. These are the fundamental principles of relationships between humans. Most of Leviticus is about us and God. We get a couple of sentences here in Leviticus 19 about humans interacting with other humans. So, Leviticus 19, starting at verse 9. When you reap the harvest of your land, do not reap to the very edges of your field or gather the gleanings of your harvest. Do not go over your vineyard a second time or pick up the grapes that have fallen. Leave them for the poor and the foreigner. I am the Lord, your God. We get a couple of punches here. Do not steal. Do not lie. Do not deceive one another. Do not swear falsely by my name, and so profane the name of your God. I am the Lord. Do not defraud or rob your neighbor. Do not hold back the wages of a hired worker overnight. Do not curse the deaf or put a stumbling block in front of the blind, but fear your God. I am the Lord. Do not pervert justice. Do not show partiality to the poor or favoritism to the great, but judge your neighbor fairly. Do not go about spreading slander among your people. Do not do anything that endangers your neighbor's life. I am the Lord. Do not hate a fellow Israelite in your heart. Rebuke your neighbor frankly so that you will not share in their guilt. Verse 18. Do not seek revenge or bear a grudge against anyone among your people, but love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. There it is. Did you know that it was there, church? So the people of God have their laws. We just read some of them. They have their orientation. They have their way. The people of God live and die. They multiply and they move. They live and die again, are held captive again, and they multiply again. I just covered the rest of the Old Testament, by the way. Hundreds of thousands of problems met with hundreds of thousands of solutions, many of which are used, taking the people in the wrong direction, and then God comes down to earth in the form of Jesus. You see how far we just jumped, ladies and gentlemen. Many scholars estimate that about 1,500 years took place between freedom from Egypt and Jesus, about 1,500 years or so. Could you imagine how worked over the law and the way could have been in that amount of time? Yeah, I know we got this law, but we got a problem over here, so I kind of need to move the law a little bit. Over 1,500 years, could you imagine how worked over the law could become? Could you imagine how marred and misused and misapplied the original orientation of God could become? Can you, could you imagine that? Could you imagine how political realities being held enslaved again, realities of power structures, could have become justified by the people of God using the law as their proof? Could you imagine this? 
how different groups of people would organize themselves around different opinions and views about the way of life, using their opinions to elevate themselves and degrade others. Come on, friends. Groups like the Pharisees, the Sadducees, lawyers, and teachers of the law. We are in the New Testament, friends. 1,500 years after freedom, generations of shifting around the way to live, Jesus comes, and he shakes up some people's systems and ways of thinking. He does that. He shakes up their way of life. So what would you say? Probably something similar to what you would have said 1,500 years prior. Who the heck is this guy? I've been living this way for a long time. My great, 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 great grandpa has been living this way for a long time. Who are you to tell me that it needs to look different? You know what else some people would say? Let's trap him. Let's frame him. Let's get rid of him. This happens, by the way. (laughs) There's an account of this trapping taking place. And I'd just like to read it aloud for you. It's in Mark chapter 12, verses 28 through 31. I'd just like to read these verses to you. One of the teachers of the law, one of the groups, one of the teachers of the law, came and heard them debating. Noticing that Jesus had given them a good answer, he asked him, Of all the commandments, which is the most important? Jesus replies, The most important one is this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord with all of your heart and with all of your soul and with all of your mind and with all of your strength. The second is this. Love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. A lot of times we look at Mark 12 and we view it as a mic drop moment for Jesus. Well, for the very first time, he's speaking words that have never been spoken before. Mark 12 and the other gospel accounts of Jesus reciting what he believes to be the greatest commandment, ladies and gentlemen, recognize that for them in that moment, it was a reminder of something that they perhaps had forgotten. This was a command, this was a law that was given thousands of years prior. Jesus reminds us that our way always has been, and always should be, love. i got to be honest. I hope that messes with you a little bit this week. I hope that you come to realize that we haven't been rolling with the greatest commandment for 2,000 years, give or take. We've been rolling with the greatest commandment for 6,000. 
the Pharisees want to trap them because they've kind of been comfortable in their way of life. They, they, they've taken the law that they had that was handed down to them, and they've worked around it, and they've been able to figure out their political way of being able to associate their faith with their politics, and they've figured out the best way to be a person of the state and a person of the world and a person of the government and also someone who shows up to the temple and does the rituals and does the prayers and knows all the scriptures. They figured it out. So surely, the greatest commandment could have changed. No. The reason that Jesus was asked to tell them what the greatest commandment was, was not so that they could be affirmed. It was so that they could be justified in their waywardness. They were hoping that he would say something else. The Pharisees were hoping that he would say something else. The Sadducees were hoping that he would say, you know what the greatest commandment actually is now? It's, it's to pray four times a day, sacrifice a lamb every month, and give 40% to the church. That's what they wanted him to say, because that's what they did. Nope. He just opened up the old dusty scroll. <laughs> Love your neighbor as yourself. They hoped that times had changed enough, and their orientation of their lives could now be made permissible Maybe love didn't have to be the main thing anymore. So here we are, 2,000 years after Jesus reminds us, reminds us of what the greatest commandment is. Now, 2,000 years after he tells us what the great commandment is for the first time, he reminds us what's on page 184 of your Bibles. Up here, not back here, up here. He reminds us what that greatest commandment is. 2,000 years later after that reminder, I'm not even going to ask a question. I'm going to say a statement. The, the, the loving way of Christ has been lost by many over these generations. I'm going to get real for a minute. I got page three of a sermon. I normally only have two pages. So we're getting some page three, Pastor Seth, this morning. All right. The loving way of Christ has been lost. Not because it's uniquely us, because it was lost in the 1,500 years between freedom and Jesus. Now we got 500 more years to work with. People do this. They forget. Some members of the body of Christ have allowed cultural shifts and political systems to reprioritize love out of the primary position of their lives and their ways of thinking. People of the body of Christ have done this. I'm not going to ask. I'm going to say it because it's true. The carnage of this wayward trajectory seems far, stems far beyond broken churches and wayward Christians. Hear me now. Centuries have gone by and more and more members of the body of Christ have forgotten the greatest commandment and millions of human beings have gone unloved and ignored by the people that God has asked to love them like he loves them. This is tragic, to say the least. Over that course of time when people have taken the law, made it say what they want it to say, all the while, millions if not billions of people have lived and died and gone unloved and ignored by the people that God has personally and specifically and clearly asked to love them 
just as he loves us. Reachway Church, this cannot be the case for us. It is non-optional. We must return to the foundation of what this life was designed for in the first place. I'm not saying we're far gone. I'm not saying that we're all just doing it wrong. But what I'm saying, I'm just going to talk about where I want us to head, where I want us to be focused on. Your family needs to be loved. Your friends need to be loved. Your church family needs to be loved. This neighborhood needs to be loved. This city needs to be loved. And here is where it begins. God loves you. Each and every one of you. God loves. We believe that everyone matters. Remember our first core value, friends? We believe that everyone matters. We believe that everyone was created by God and is loved by God with an equal love. So we will live in such a way to where that's actually true. But what that means is that you matter. That's what that means as well, is that you matter. We believe that God has created you. We believe that God loves you and enables you to love others. So I want to give our church a directive this week. All six weeks of this series, we're going to be giving directives or, or things that we can do to actually bring to life the things that we've talked about and learned about in these gatherings. This week's is this. Love where love has been lost. I'm not going to tell you how to love, and I'm not going to tell you where specifically love has been lost. But let's assume that it has been, and let's assume that we are being called by the creator of the universe who loves you, that he's calling and asking you to love where love has been lost. So I pray this week, church, that you would have the eyes of Christ to see the areas that surround you, the lives, the situations, the workplaces, the communities where there is no love, where love was but has left, and church, I am challenging you to be the love in that place. I don't know what that looks like, and I'm not here to tell you what that's going to look like. This is all I want you to know. Love, where love has been lost. No longer will people get lost in the shuffle of this world, as long as I have anything to say about it. It's kind of, so this is me fired up, to be real. This is, I know it's, yeah, I know. This is, this is me fired up. No longer will people get lost in the shuffle. No longer will the church become distracted. No longer will the church become distracted. No longer will the church become distracted. 
No longer will the church become distracted. No longer will anything take the place of loving God and loving others as ourselves.